Well, we're going to continue in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. This is our fifth week in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. I'm going to invite Sarah to come, and Sarah is going to do our scripture reading for us today in both Spanish and English, I am told. All right, let's open our hearts to receive from God's word here today. This is the word of the Lord. Oísteis que fue dicho a los antiguos, no matarás, y cualquiera que matare será culpable de juicio. Pero yo os digo que cualquiera que se enoje contra su hermano será culpable de juicio, y cualquiera que diga necio a su hermano será culpable ante el concilio, y cualquiera que le diga fatuo quedará expuesto al infierno de fuego. Por tanto, si traes tu, tu ofrenda al altar y ahí te acuerdas de que tu hermano tiene algo contra ti, deja allí tu ofrenda delante del altar y anda, reconcíliate primero con tu hermano y entonces ven y presenta tu ofrenda. Ponte de acuerdo con tu adversario pronto, entre tanto que estás con él en el camino. No sea que el adversario te entregue al juez y el juez al alguacil y seas echado en la cárcel. De cierto te digo que no saldrás de allí hasta que pagues el último cuadrante. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word today, Jesus, as you, you are teaching us what it looks like to live as citizens of the kingdom, I ask and I pray that you would help guide and direct my words and you would help all of us to really look at our own hearts, to bring our hearts before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, if you know me at all, you know that I'm a fan of Batman. And that's important to know because uh, I just want you to know that. But the, the, the greatest superhero trilogy of all time, the, the, the Dark Knight trilogy that Chris Nolan made with Christian Bale. And in the first movie, Batman Begins, there's this line where Bruce Wayne is just, you know, clowning around and he's not really taking things seriously. And his, his childhood friend, Rachel, comes up to him and says, you know, it's not who you are underneath that counts. It's what you do. And I remember that line, I was like, yeah, because like I'm a, I'm a person of action. Like I don't want to just hear people talk about things. I want, like, show me what you're doing. Show me who you are. It kind of sounds like the book of James, right? It kind of sounds like, you know, if you have faith, that's great, but show me your faith by what you do. There's only one problem. I don't think I agree fully with Batman. And that's really hard for me to say publicly, but it's the truth. And so I need to just get that off my chest because here's the thing. While there is truth to that idea, like you, you have to show what's going on in your heart with your actions, it is also possible to go through the motions and do actions without a heart underneath. Amen? Both are actually a problem. It is a problem to sit around and say, I've got all this love, and then you don't do anything with that love. But it is also a problem to do a bunch of actions, to do a bunch of activities, and have your heart be cold underneath. 
I love live music. I've still not yet been to, I've been to live sports, which has been fun. I've not yet been to a concert. I'm starting to get emails from bands and venues and things that live music is coming. I love going to live music. It's one of the reasons why I moved to Seattle. I love going to live concerts. And I also, in particular, I love classic rock. Like my dad and I, he raised me on, you know, the good old classics. I got to take my dad to see Deep Purple a few years ago, and he was, he was extremely happy, and I was extremely happy with him. And, but you ever see see one of these like older classic rock bands where it's like they are just mailing it in to get a paycheck like they are there at whatever you know Swinomish casino or whatever and they're like you know mm-hmm, smoke on the water and I'm happy to report Deep Purple did not do that they were playing from the heart but other bands you've seen I'm not going to name names I'm not going to say who it was but it rhymes with Banzas and like just one time I saw them like just completely mailing it in like their, their heart wasn't in it right or if you go, uh, you know, see uh, uh, sports, right? There's been conversation here through the NBA playoffs about some of these young players who are really hungry and they're just playing because they love the game and versus some of these older veterans who are just playing to get a paycheck, right? Those of you who are parents, you know there's those moments where your child comes to you and they're like, I want to just, I want to make you breakfast in bed, mom. And you're like, please don't. But they, like, their heart is just so sincere versus other times you're like, hey, could you load the dishwasher? And they're like, yeah, and they kind of skulk off. Right? We all know that feeling when you can tell that someone's heart is just not in it. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he's laying out this vision for the kingdom of God and what it's going to look like for citizens of the kingdom to follow him as the king. And what Jesus wants us to know today, that there, there's, a certain, there's a certain way that he wants his followers to follow him. Jesus is not interested in our begrudging obedience, but he wants an obedience that flows from a genuine heart of love. And that's the big idea for today, that genuine obedience, genuinely following Jesus, really needs to flow from a genuine heart of love. There's a loveless way to obey, and Jesus is not interested in that. So we're going to look today at some examples of lovelessness, We're going to talk about how Jesus shakes us out of this lovelessness. And then we're going to talk about how to grow in a truly loving heart. Some examples of lovelessness, being shaken out of lovelessness, and how to grow in genuine heart of love. Those are the three points we're going to talk about. Really quickly, though, I just want to give you a little context and kind of bridge the gap because it's been a few weeks, but you might remember two weeks ago that Jesus, when we were looking at the words of Jesus, he said he did not come to abolish the Torah, but he came to fulfill it. And we talked about how Jesus is, is um, <clears throat> you know, he's, he's basically saying, I am the one who is going to show you how to rightly interpret and rightly understand the scriptures that were given to Moses. And in today's passage, he's going to say, you have heard it said to our ancestors. You have heard it said. In fact, over the next, excuse me, chapter and a half, he's going to say that five, maybe six times. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. This is Jesus preaching a biblical sermon. This is Jesus doing a sermon on the book of Exodus. D.A. Carson, who's a scholar, an author, a pastor, he, he writes this. He says, With matchless authority, Jesus has made himself the pivotal point of history. The Old Testament points toward him, and now, having arrived, he introduces the kingdom and shows how the Old Testament finds its ultimate validity and real continuity in himself and his teaching." At the same time, Jesus must contend with another problem. He cannot assume 
that everything the people have heard about the Old Testament scriptures was really in the Old Testament. This is because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law regarded certain oral traditions, things like the the Talmud or the Midrash or all these different things. They regarded them as equal in authority with the scripture itself, thereby contaminating the teaching of scripture with some fallacious but tenaciously held interpretations. If you ever want to really get uh, our good friend Rabbi Matt going, Rabbi Matt's going to come and preach while I'm on sabbatical later on in the fall, but we've talked about this. Like, look, Jesus is not anti-Old Testament. What he is anti is these Pharisees' Uh, elevating man-made traditions to the same level of importance as the scripture. You want to see Rabbi Matt's head explode? You just talk to him about that. He says, therefore, in each of the five blocks of material which followed, Jesus says something like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Now listen, this is important. He does not begin these contrasts by telling them what the Old Testament said, but what they heard it said. And this is an important observation because Jesus is not negating something from the Old Testament, but something from their understanding of it. Jesus is doing biblical exegesis. And he has the authority to rightly interpret the Old Testament scriptures because he's the one that wrote them in the first place. Okay, that was just introduction. That was totally free of charge. Here we go. Examples of lovelessness. Examples of lovelessness. First section. Going back to verse 21. You have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Now, where does do not murder come from, friends? Ten commandments. Good job. You did get some of those iced coffees already from the uh, lobby. Good job. You have heard it said, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. My, my little paraphrase of this is, hey, you don't want to get in trouble? Don't murder. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Uh-oh. Whoever insults his brother or sister... And the word there for insult is an is a Aramaic word, raka, and translators don't exactly know how to, you know, specifically translate it, but it's some sort of a term of a put-down or, or anger. If you insult your brother or sister, you'll be subject to the court. The Sanhedrin is the word in the Greek there. It's the, it's the ruling Jewish court that has the power to pronounce consequences upon you. And whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hell fire. All right, just let's camp out here for a moment. Let's talk about anger. Because the commandment addresses murder, but Jesus says it's really about anger. Now, we must, we must note, not all anger is inherently sinful. There, is, there are times in the scriptures where God gets angry at injustice and people being taken advantage of, even like we just talked about, orphans and widows and the foreigner, the sojourner, or the, or the immigrant. That's the, that's the, the, and the poor, the quartet of the vulnerable. God is very angry when those people are taken advantage of. And God's people, in the Psalms and in the prophets, God's people get very angry at unjust rulers. They get angry at Babylon. They get angry at the Ammonites. There is an anger, a righteous type of anger there. Just read the Psalms. If you read the Psalms and really pay attention, there are things in there that will curl your hair a little bit. 
Good anger is a reaction to injustice. It's actually, it's a, there's a physiological component to it that, that God has hardwired us. When we see injustice and we see someone being harmed, there's, there's something that just rises up in us that we want to, to jump in and to get involved. I've had a, a few examples of that in my own life where I see someone being harmed and there's this almost like kind of unthinking, like, ah, and you have to just kind of jump in. It's a reaction of strength. And there is such a thing as good anger. The problem is very little of our anger is righteous, good anger. Can I get an amen from the church, okay? I need an amen from the balcony, all right? It's just very important to me right today. I want balcony amens, okay? The, 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 the apostle James writes that Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So much of our sinful anger, it's, it's usually selfish. It's usually, I want my way. I want what I want. You are getting in the way of what I want. Therefore, I am angry at you. It's our, it's our fallen flesh using that strength reaction to intimidate others, either to defend my own ego or to get something that I want. And by the way, our sinful anger, our fleshly anger, our human anger can sometimes just be completely made up. I remember one time I woke up from a dream. I think this was in high school. And I had a dream that one of my friends had stolen my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And I was angry. I was so angry for like a while. Like, I mean, compare like for like 10 or 15 minutes until I was like, wait a minute. That was a dream. He has his own girlfriend. He would never try to steal my girlfriend. This is dumb. But I was, I was legit angry for like 15 minutes when I first woke up in the morning over something that was completely, I don't know, maybe you know, Freud would have something to say about insecurities going on, or I don't know. But, but there are times where we are angry at each other over a simple misunderstanding. Someone said something, someone did something, and we didn't quite understand it correctly, and we're angry and we're frustrated. And Jesus is saying here this idea of, of anger and, and division from our brothers and sisters does not please God. Now, I want to make two, maybe, maybe one quick clarification here. Uh, Jesus here, I do not believe, uh, is talking about things that would fall into the category of an abusive relationship. A little later in Matthew chapter 7, he's going to say, don't take your pearls and throw them before swine. It's just going to trample them. And Jesus also says, don't take that which is holy and give it to the dogs because he says they will turn and they will tear you to pieces. So there's, there's something good to be said about having boundaries in certain relationships. There's, there's something to be said about having certain uh, uh, separation or even distance from certain relationships. But what Jesus is talking about here is that which is common to mankind where we want something, we have a separation, we have an anger issue with someone, the, the, the common relational fallout that happens with family and friends. And what Jesus is saying is that, yeah, murder, like, hey, good job not committing murder. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands here, but I'm going to guess we're batting a pretty good average at not committing murder in this room, okay? But if I was to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you have been angry at times with your brother or sister I think every single one of us, if we're being honest, needs to raise our hand. And what Jesus is saying is those both come from the same loveless heart. Another example, second example, verse 27. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. 
Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Adultery is probably more common than murder, but still, in the, in the grand scheme of things, relatively less common. Do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I want to share a few things about this to unpack it. The word lust can be non-sexual, we lust after possessions, we lust after fame, we lust after uh, uh, you know, accolades. But here we are talking about sexual lust. And I also think it's important to note that attraction is not the same thing as lust. Uh, there are passages of the Bible that, that praise the physical beauty of both men and women. Read, if you're over the age of 30, read Song of Songs, okay, right? It is not wrong to notice that someone is beautiful and someone has a beautiful appearance. But it is wrong to stop and to terminate there instead of giving God worship and giving God honor and giving God glory to stop and to say, I want something that doesn't belong to me. That is lust and that is sinful. It also should be noted here that Jesus uses the language of a man lusting after a woman's beauty, uh, I, I think that it is important to note that it is not exclusively that direction, but more common. It is more common. And so I will speak here just using the kind of he and her sort of language that Jesus does, but lust is not just a man's problem. Sisters, you can sin with physical lust as well. But you know what just jumps off the page at me here? Jesus does not put the burden on the person being lusted after, but the person committing the sin of lust. And I think it's important to note that because in certain sections of modern American Christianity, we get this literally backwards. Literally backwards. Well, if you, you know... If particularly for, for women, a burden is placed on the neck of women to make sure that no men around them are lusting. Jesus, in a moment, we haven't got to the consequences and the, and the shocking language, but he's going to say, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off if you are the one who is being tempted towards lust. Jesus does not put the burden on the recipient of the sin, but the one committing the sin. Like, this should just be, like, no-duh sort of common sense. But I have to say it because we don't often operate with this kind of Christ-like common sense. Friends, we live in a highly sexualized society. It's everything. You can't, you can't be marketed a hamburger. It's a, it's a dead cow with cheese on it. And we're going to use sexuality to convince you to buy it. It's utterly, if you were, if you were to really zoom out, like if you were an alien visiting from another planet, like something is wrong with that culture. And I know for many of us, it feels like an impossible task to avoid sexual temptation. And I will say within the body of Christ, it is fair. It is fair to have conversations with 
sisters in the church about dressing modestly or dressing appropriately. But, but there's a problem because all of that is kind of a cultural moving target. What, what is appropriate in one culture may not be appropriate in another culture. You go back to Victorian England, they were putting tablecloths over the legs of the table so the men wouldn't lust after the table legs. It's a for real thing. Go look it up. It's insane. There is wisdom, like in the book of Proverbs, for men to say, I need to avoid certain situations, or I need to avoid certain people, or avoid, I just can't go there. And there is uh, uh, love, like Romans chapter 14 talks about in considering how we dress and how we treat one another. But the, the point that Jesus is making here is that both adultery and lust come from the same heart. We can talk about principles, we can talk about best practices, but the most important thing that Jesus wants to get to is our heart. Both adultery and lust come from a loveless heart. So those are the examples. Murder and anger, adultery and lust. And not one of us can stand up and say, I have not committed murder, and I have not committed adultery, therefore I am righteous. We all have to admit that there is anger and there is lust in our hearts. Now, secondly, I want, you to, sh- I want to show you how, how Jesus shakes his hearers out of this legalistic, loveless, self-justifying obedience. Jesus is going to do three things here I want to point out. Jesus is going to raise the bar, he's going to use exaggerated language, and he's going to show us the seriousness of the consequences. So raising the bar, uh, going back to verse 21. You've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then skipping down to verse 27, he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Comparatively speaking, what's more difficult? Don't murder or don't be angry? Which one's a little bit harder? I have found it, speaking only for myself, relatively easy to not murder anyone up to this point at 39 years old, okay? I have found it next to impossible to not be angry almost every day of my life. There's this caricature of the Old Testament being this super high bar and God was so strict and God was so mean and then Jesus comes along and it's all hugs and puppies and unicorns and rainbows and it's just, it's so much cotton candy and it's so fluff. Read the words of Jesus. He does not lower the bar. He raises the bar. He does not say, well, it's okay. Nobody's perfect. He says, no, I am telling you that God's standard is perfection. Jesus raises the bar. Jesus also uses exaggerated language to make a point. Go back to verse 23. Jesus, he says this about, about if you're angry and you have division with someone. He says, if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. He also says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary before, uh, sorry, while you're on your way with him to the court, just pausing for a quick second, we, uh, 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 this idea of leaving your gift at the altar. Jesus is preaching in Galilee. That's the northern region. It, it tells us that he's preaching in the Galilee. This sermon is taking place the northern, the northern region of Judea. And to get to Jerusalem, to go to the temple, to offer your gift at the altar is about a three days journey. 
and you are doing so with livestock, with cattle, with goats, with maybe birds if you're someone of a lower socioeconomic class. And Jesus says, you just walked three days with a goat, leave the goat there by itself in the temple, walk the three days back to the Galilee, go be reconciled with whoever you have an ought with, and then you can walk the three days back, find your goat, and then you can offer it at the altar, okay? Something is lost in translation, something is lost in the cultural differences there, but that's ridiculous what Jesus is saying. I love it. He's using something very like, what? Just leave your goat? Go walk three more days and go, like, it's a big deal. Jesus is using this exaggerated language to say, you need to be willing to drop everything and go make it right with someone. The the language here also about, but reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. The English translation, reach a settlement quickly. I'm not wild about it because in the Greek, the words are literally become friends. Become friends with your adversary. Uh, to use a modern colloquialism, kiss and make up. We throw that out there. Have you ever actually kissed one of your enemies? I never have. I hope to never do that. That's on my bucket list. Never kiss one of my enemies. So it's a, it's a wild statement. Jesus is saying, go make friends with the person who is suing you. That's exaggerated language. Like, whoa, what is going on here? Right? Or, or if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, again, Jesus is not interested in physical mangling of image bearers of God. Because actually gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand doesn't actually ultimately solve the problem. First of all, you might have another eye and another hand. You might have ears that could hear a woman's wonderful soft voice and you could still lust. What he's saying is be willing to do whatever it takes to say no to sin. This is a rhetorical tool from Jesus. It's a, it's a splash of cold water to the face to shake up his hearers. It's a, it's, a, it's a jumper cables on a dead battery to, to, to jumpstart a loveless heart. How many of you know we need that sometimes in our lives? We need a little startle. We need a little scare. We need a little, hey, kind of moment. Which is why, out of love, I will often hide in various places in the house and jump out and scare my wife For 20 years of marriage, not a week has gone by that I haven't jumped out and scared her at least once. It's amazing that I haven't come to church with a black eye at this point. Because because here's the thing. Maybe she's folded some laundry downstairs in our family room and she's walking it up the stairs. I don't want her just going through the motions of laundry. I want it to come from a loving and a sincere heart. So out of Christ-honoring duty, I jump out and terrify her so that she shrieks and her heart is brought into alignment. Like, I do love my family, right? That's how it works, right? Okay, maybe I've stretched the point a little bit too far. But the point is this. Jesus is doing something on purpose to startle us, to wake us up, because it's so easy to slide into loveless obedience. And then Jesus lets us know the seriousness of the consequences to shake us out of our loveless obedience. Back to verse 22. I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the Sanhedrin, the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be subject to the fires of Gehenna. He says in verse 25, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison and and truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Uh, Real quick clarification on that. I do not believe that in these verses, Jesus is talking about being thrown into hell because you can't actually pay back the last penny. I believe that what Jesus is saying here is it's only going to get worse later. You're going to get bled dry if you don't deal with these relational conflicts more quickly. But later on, when he says it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell, there he is talking about eternal judgment. The consequences are serious. They're serious in this life, and they're serious for the life to come. So Jesus raises the bar, he uses this exaggerated language, and he warns us of the seriousness of the consequences if we don't hear what he's saying. I warned you when we started this teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount, it's a very high standard. It's an incredibly high bar. My sense is that many of you, most of you right now, are feeling the weight of the law feeling the weight of God's standard of perfection for his kingdom citizens. Which is why I want to remind you of the good news that we've already heard. That Jesus came to fulfill the law. And that includes these laws that we're talking about right now. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came because there was a relational breach between God and mankind. And Jesus left the true altar in heaven to come to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus was called a fool. Jesus was yelled raka at by his own family members by his own kin, by his own flesh and blood. And when he, when he did so, when he received that, the, the, Peter tells us that Jesus did not insult in return. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And Jesus faced the court. Jesus faced the Sanhedrin. Jesus had to stand before false accusations in front of the Jewish high council And in a very real sense, Jesus himself faced the fires of Gehenna, the fires of hell on the cross as he paid the penalty for our lust and for our adultery and for our anger and for our murder. And no, Jesus never lusted and his eye was not gouged out, but Jesus' eyes were indeed filled with blood because a crown of thorns was placed on his head and the blood ran down his forehead into his eyes. So he looked through blood-stained eyes upon those who were crucifying him. And no, Jesus did not have his hand cut off, but he did have his hands pierced for our transgressions. And he did not do it begrudgingly. The Bible tells us that it was because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
The Bible tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he went to the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus had mercy and compassion upon his people. All of it came from a pure and a loving and a genuine and a sincere heart of obedience to his father that Jesus did all of that for us. That he fulfilled this law perfectly. And where we have failed, we can trust that he has succeeded perfectly. And he rose from the dead to offer us new life from the inside out if we would just put our faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're listening and you've never trusted in Jesus, listen, let me just tell you right now, We're only a few verses into this Sermon on the Mount. You cannot be a good person according to the standards of Jesus. You just can't do it. And so the thing to do is to become poor in your spirit and say, Lord, I don't have what it takes to achieve this standard. And what the the thing to do is to mourn and to weep and say, "I, I need help. I need mercy. And the thing to do is to humble yourself and to be meek and come and say, will you please help me? Will you please forgive me? Because I have not met even the lower standard, much less the higher standard of perfection. I need a righteousness. I need an obedience that doesn't come from me. And friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus delights in sharing his resurrection life with you if you will believe. Jesus wants your heart. Some of you today have been walking with Jesus for a long time and you needed to hear the high bar and the splash of water in the face. You needed to be reminded That God is not interested in your going through the motions, begrudging obedience. He wants your heart. He wants to set your heart on fire anew, even today. I've sat with people as a pastor, sat with married couples, sat sat with a husband who sat there with his wife and said, I've never cheated on her. I've always provided for her. What's the big deal? I've, I've, I've been okay. I've been a good husband with this just heart that's just so loveless. I did the right things. I've sat with people who come to church every single week and do their good religious duty, but their hearts are far from God. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants to change you from the inside out. And so I offer you three quick thoughts in closing as how we can, how we can do this, how we can say, Lord, I, maybe today you're feeling that weight of conviction. I've just been obeying out of kind of duty. I've been obeying out of obligation. Maybe you're even a kind of person who finds it relatively easy to do the right thing. Just know God wants to take you to a deeper level in your heart. So I offer you three thoughts. First is this. Embrace Jesus' warnings. That's, that's, I'll be honest, like, it's hard to read through and to study and to prepare in this passage this week. And it's difficult to, to read the sternness of those warnings. It's okay to feel a little bit unsettled today. 
I don't know that, I don't know that Sound City is ever going to be the kind of church where you come to it's like, man, I just, every single time, I just feel so wonderful every time. <laughs> I want to build you up in the gospel. I want to encourage you in Christ. But there is some times where we need to hear that warning from Jesus. So it's okay. Embrace his warnings. Embrace the seriousness of what he says. Number two, do the difficult right thing. I mean, all these things that Jesus tells us to do, go, leave your gift, go be reconciled. Oh, it's so hard. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive and at work within you. Don't tell me it's too hard. It is too hard for you in your own flesh. But the good news is, we're not living by the flesh, are we? We're living by the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God alive and at work within us. It's okay. Oh, it's going to be so awkward. Yeah, it's going to be really awkward. Sorry. It's going to be really, oh, this conversation is going to be so painful. Yeah, it's going to be really difficult. Jesus went to the cross. That was more difficult. He rose from the dead, and his spirit is alive within you. Come on, Christian. Do we believe the gospel or not? Do we believe the gospel or not? Which leads to my third and final point. Just stinking remember the gospel. You saw that one coming. (laughs) He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all things. When you come face to face with your own shortcomings, with your own failures, with your own flaws— The good news is you're not going to just dig deeper within yourself and get everything right. You're going to run to Jesus who offers grace and mercy, like buckets of it, buckets of it. More than you could ever even ask or imagine. He's got more grace than you have sin. He's got more forgiveness, more mercy, more love than you have sin. And... He fulfilled all things perfectly for you. He died. He rose again. You're going to be all right. So let's prepare our hearts now to come to the Lord's table as we remember his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we we thank you now that you have loved us. We thank you now that you have not treated us according to how our sins would deserve. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have fulfilled all these things perfectly, that where we have been angry and murderous, where we have been lustful and adulterous, Jesus, you were only faithful and you are only faithful. So would you minister your grace to us now as we come to the table, as we eat and as we drink, as we stand to our feet and as we sing, would you minister your grace to us now that though in our flesh we are quite fallen, you have fulfilled the law on our behalf for us pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.